Hello, and welcome to We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. This month, I'm excited to bring you a story by Abby May Otis called Alien Love Disaster Virus. This is the first story in her collection of the same name, Alien Love Disaster Virus Stories, that came out from Small Beer Press. I've known Abby for a while now. We met in anarchist circles, but we bonded immediately over our shared love for speculative fiction. Her work is different from what we've run so far on the show, however, in that it isn't actually about anarchists. It isn't about anarchist struggle. Instead, it's just about our fucked up world, or I guess it's about how our fucked up world would deal with something even more fucked up than usual. I'm still figuring out my audio setup, so please forgive the various levels of quality. In the interview portion, there are some digital artifacts from our bad connection, but I think what Abby has to say is absolutely worth it. I also want to give a content warning that the protagonist of this story uses an ableist slur. We're a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, so here's a jingle for another show on the network. Good morning, slaves. Looking for relief from the steaming hot plate of bullshit served up on the daily by the mainstream media? Are you thirsting for solid and reliable information to escape the mind-numbing vortex of corporate news and Trump tweets? Are you ready to check out every time you hear a Despacito on the radio one more fucking time? Then tune your dial to Sub.media, a mouth-watering hub of infotainment and subversion that'll make you want to quit your job and join the motherfucking resistance. Dive into our newly designed website and gorge yourself on one of the 500-plus videos and audio tracks from our vast library of anarchist films, hip-hop, and riot porn, or choose from one of our original shows, like Trouble, Burning Cop Car, A's for Anarchy, Video Ninja Reports, and The Stimulator. Fuck Netflix. Watch Sub.media. Alien Love Disaster Virus by Abby May Otis. Read by B. Flowers. This story appeared as the title story in the collection Alien Love Disaster Virus Stories, published in 2018 by Small Beer Press. What happens first is people in hospital masks come banging on our doors before it's even lights out. They herd us out of our houses and down the block to what used to be the football field of Paige Clifton Senior High School. They make a strip and pile our clothes on the bleachers. It's August, but the mist hasn't burned off the morning yet, and we shiver. Especially Mrs. Todd shivers, who's 82. There's like 200 of us. Everybody who lives on James Row, plus 12th Street, plus whoever they could prod out of the Amorcito apartments. Megaphones all over, blaring, State of emergency, please proceed in an orderly manner. This is a matter of public safety. They push us naked into the field. Near me are the Nailers, who never come out of their corner house, the Sherman sisters I've known all my life, Trini with her baby, who always cries but is dead quiet now. People hunch like peeled shrimp with giant, scared eyes. Man, what is this bullshit? asks Dean, my little brother. He's 12, and I should smack him for that kind of language, but that's when they turn the fire hoses on us. Everyone lifted off their feet. Everyone hurled into everyone else. Legs, hair, ribs, nails. Mrs. Todd folds in half. Dean goes face down so hard his nose snaps on the mud. I want to scream, but I think if I opened my mouth, I'd be filled with water. Windsock in a hurricane style. Somebody's wet foot tangles with my shin, and I smack down into the wet earth. 
mouthful of torn up grass and grit and slime. I roll over. Lying on my back, I can see past the wreck of water and bodies. Way above us, the sun's coming up. The rising spume fills the sky with rainbows. On a normal day, I'd be awake by now. I'd be about to take a shower. People stumble down next to me, over me. The hoses blast away everything. Dirt, skin, memory. I'm starting to disintegrate just like the earth. My brain is going to mingle with the soup. Bye, Trini. Bye, baby. Bye, Dean. You were so right. What is this bullshit? I for sure don't know. The hoses go off. Your clothing will be incinerated, the megaphone says. You can fill out a form for compensation from the Office of Toxin Containment. You'll get an information packet detailing follow-up action in 7 to 10 business days. We're all shaky trying to get out of the muck. People pull on each other to stand and slip and drag someone else down with them. Everybody's got a painted camo warrior face, and some of us have red streaks where our nose is blood or our skin flayed away. Someone is like, well, guess we better get cleaned up, and someone else has the balls to laugh. Where Dean and I live is the downstairs left side of a fourplex, with linoleum floors even in the bedroom. They call it a fourplex, but really it's five because they put some plywood around the water heater in the basement and rented the extra space out to an immigrant family. The only window they have down there is the hole in our kitchen floor, where sometimes I peek through and see them all clustered around a hot plate. What's in front of us is weeds, and the spot where Mrs. Todd couldn't get any squash to grow, and a Jobs with Justice sign some little guy came by and stuck in the yard five years ago. What's in back is kind of a deck, but the boards are sagging in the middle, so it's shaped like a U. You might think there's more weeds under the deck, but wrong. Just concrete. And beyond the concrete, there's some chain link, and beyond the chain link, there's this enormous dirt field. And way out in the middle of the dirt is the low-down gray building everybody calls the Magic Factory. Why it's called that is because that place puts on better shows than 4th of July. I'm serious. 4th of July only might be better because you always know when it's coming. Right after the 3rd, duh. Magic Factory shows are always a surprise, but once it gets going... Somebody will yell, and then everybody comes to watch. The Sherman sisters have a whole setup with folding chairs, but mostly people just stand in their backyards or press faces to the chain link or climb it if they've got tiny feet. You can't climb all the way over because of the razor wire. Back when Mom lived with us and Benning was sniffing after her, he'd lift me or Dean up on his shoulders so we could see better. The best thing was when someone was doing a cookout the same night as a Magic Factory show. Like you're chomping down, boiling hot dog juice squirting into your mouth, and then you look over and there's glitter pouring out of the smokestacks on top of the building. I say glitter, but every time is different. Sometimes big spreads of color that hover over the roof, pulsing like heartbeats. Or sometimes just rivers of stars gushing up and up and spreading across the night and then falling. You clamp your hot dog in your mouth and stretch out your arms, but just when the stars are about to land on your wrists, they disappear. They always disappear. Or sometimes you'll be picking corn out of your teeth, and suddenly the air is full of sound. Like music, but no tune and no words, so maybe not like music. Always it's way too loud to talk over, and it kind of hurts your ears, but also it kind of hurts your heart in a way I think everybody secretly enjoys. Like the most beautiful animal in the world is trapped in a cage somewhere inside there. 
And we are the ones who have to listen to it. And we are the ones who get to listen to it. The day after they hose us down, there's a bunch of caution tape wrapped around the magic factory. And down on Marion Street, there's a big padlock on the gate that leads into the dirt field. The sign that said, property of the federal government, no trespassing, is gone. And now there's just one that says, decommissioned. I'm going to be honest, there's definitely no geniuses living on this block. But you don't need to be a genius to figure out everyone who got hosed lives in a house that backs up against the factory. I think probably you could even be a little, I know I'm not supposed to use this word, but retarded and still make something of that. What happens next is an email comes with a list of drug prescriptions and a pharmacy voucher for 50 bucks. Consumers in the listed neighborhoods may have come into contact with dispersed agents. See notification 103C. The following regimen is recommended but not endorsed by the FDA. At the drugstore, the pills come to 64.40, so I start counting out change. You got a day off for those? The drugstore lady taps a bottle. What's that? This one's going to keep you at home for a day. How come everybody's asking for these? Tell you what, I don't envy none of you one bit. Like, what do you mean? You got a question, you can call the number. Number's on the receipt. What? Sweetheart, there's a long line behind you. She points, and it's true. Old man and lady and a woman with a baby on each hip, and everybody's clutching their printed-out voucher. So I'm walking out past them, and I get this idea to be like, Oh, I think I remember you from somewhere? You were the one all muddy and screaming? Maybe you remember me. I was all muddy and screaming too? But nobody laughs. Little brother is on the sofa when I get back to the apartment. Oh, Dean, I know you did not get sent home the first day of school. He rolls his eyes because, obviously. Miss Shipley lied. Mrs. Shipley said I was in the hall after Bell and she saw me coming and she shut the door early. She slammed it in my face. Why does she hate me so bad? You need to quit the excuses and start the explainings, like now. What she said was I was banging on the door threatening her. Like, yeah, Mrs. Shipley, you think I care about your dumbass study hall? Like, shit. She hates me. I'm serious. If you swear one more time, she doesn't hate you. You're making trouble for yourself. Instead of listening, he gathers his limbs together in a gangly bouquet. He digs at the sole of his bare foot, peels off a big nugget of callus, and flicks it onto the rug. Oh my god, Dean, gross! Pick it up! Pick it up! I smack his head with the bag of pills, and he skitters into the bathroom. Now I'm alone. The room is still. The basement family isn't rustling around. Late afternoon sun turns everything gold, even the dead skin crumbs on the floor. I line up the pill bottles on the table. They all have long names full of X's and Z's, and I know that's how you trust something's authorized scientific, but it still makes me kind of nervous. The labels say something about don't take on an empty stomach, so I put two patties in the microwave. Dean, come out here. You got to take some of these. He doesn't answer, so I count out pills for myself, line them up in my hand. Little blue moons, pink circles, orange and white ovals. One deep breath, then they all go down together. I wash them down with red juice out of the bottle. So sweet, I kind of stop being able to breathe for a moment. Dean? Seriously, come here. The bathroom door stays closed.
There's too much to do in the mornings. There's do we still have enough minutes on the prepaid? Is there enough money left in the checking? Where's the credit card? The other credit card? Does Dean have his bus pass, backpack, shoes, homework? There's has anyone messaged for a nail appointment? Because don't laugh, but I'm still hoping the small business thing will take off. I can do all of those things at once. I'm a multitasker like that, but it's a dance. If I get messed up, I can't start again. What happens this morning is, right in the middle of counting out a dollar for Dean, pain. No joke pain. Like someone tangled their hand deep in my guts and yanked. I shriek in Dean's face and his hand that was held out for a nickel instead gets a big gob of my spit. The hell, big sister? But I can't do anything except double over and make noises like someone's pulling saws out of my throat. There's a fat python clenched around my insides. There's a cat hanging by its claws from between my legs. I shriek and shudder again and see Dean staring at me, mouth open, still cupping my spit in his palm. Noma, are you? He looks younger when he's afraid. There's a seeping warmth in my underwear, and I'm pretty sure I don't want his help on this one. It's okay. Get out of the way. Somehow I get into the bathroom and pull my jeans down, and wow is my underwear a mess. Rust and pink and bright red jelly down my legs. All I can do is collapse on the toilet and hunch over my knees. The pain rolls through in spurts, and I bite the heel of my hand so Dean won't hear me yell. Spit slicks down my wrists. I wrench my brain away from panic and try to get my breath to slow down. Blue light filters down from the high up window. There's the plink, plink of the sink leaking and the sigh of the toilet tank and no other sounds. It smells like how I imagine a cave smells. I lay my forehead against the cool of the toilet seat and peer between my legs. The cramps turn everything blurry like Vaseline smeared on a camera lens. Every task I was trying to finish falls away. Nothing to do except inhale, exhale, and watch the blood fall out of me in ropes. When Dean inches open the bathroom door and peeks around, I'm in a numb ball on the tile, pants still around my ankles. He puts his hand in my armpits and lifts me like a child. Dean, you missed school? He doesn't say anything. He gets a washcloth and runs the water until it warms. He gathers up my ruined clothes and carries them away. I sit in the tub until I stop shaking. Then I tell Dean to go get the bottles on the table. He still doesn't speak. Just pour them in the toilet. He doesn't ask why. The toilet bowl is scattered with pastel constellations. I think about how such tiny things can have such long names. I think about the constellations that rose out of the magic factory. I think about the spray from the fire hoses that made bruises on our bodies and rainbows on the sky. I push the lever and the toilet glugs and everything disappears. Like hell I took them. Trini and Trini's cousin and Georgia Sherman and I sit on Georgia's front porch and I'm working on Trini's cousin's nail beds. Trini's joggling her baby on her knee and explaining why she didn't take her pills. He's still nursing, you know. Like I'm all about natural weaning, and I don't ingest nothing unless my doctor says. And you know my doctor hasn't called me back in a year or so. She clicks her tongue and shrugs. I'm thinking, come on, Trini. You were feeding that baby chicken poppers before he had teeth. 
but I like that she's with me on the pill thing, so I just keep pushing her cousin's cuticles. Well, I took them. Georgia says it in her I'm old and I don't have time for this voice. Just to be on the safe side. They still won't even say what happened to us. I think I'm having a reaction, though. I got this spot. She pulls up her shirt. Above her hip, there's a red bump, wide as a quarter. Trini is going, uh, yeah, what did I tell you? But then she looks and goes, oh, but I, I got one like that. Hers is on the small of her back, to the right of her spine. That is so weird, you know? I stop in the middle of applying a base coat and ask, can I touch them? The bumps feel hard and round, like everybody's got ping pong balls buried inside them. Trini giggles. Dang, Norma, your fingers are ticklish. Then I lift up my shirt and show them the three bumps on my stomach, and Trini stops giggling. Oh, what? Oh, what the? Oh, wow. Trini's cousin is from the coast, and she's looking at us like she doesn't even want to know what's going on in this neighborhood. I reach out to finish putting on her enamel, and she hesitates before giving me her hand. The sun is going down and painting the sky so pretty, someone should put it in a museum. I make each of that cousin's nails disappear under three strokes of copper wildfire. Nobody gets up to go into the backyard. Nobody looks for magic shows anymore. We never said anything about it to each other, but we all just know. So, like, you expect a lot of things to be hard in life. Like, there will always be bills and always landlords, and your mom's always going to have creepy boyfriends and fake friends are always going to be stabbing you in the back. Like, when you get fired from the nail salon where you've worked for two years, and you weren't even ever late except that one time, even that isn't too surprising. But having weird bumps sprouting up all over your body, and now there's way more and they're growing bigger, that's the kind of thing you just don't really plan for. At this point, I have nine, and Dean has 14. I don't know how many other people have, because it would be weird to go around counting, but I'm sure it's a bunch. Hardly anybody sits outside on James Row anymore. Dean's quit making up excuses for skipping school. I'm supposed to be mad about that, but it's like the mad part of me has shriveled up and blown away. Instead, this afternoon, I'm like, let's treat ourselves. Why not? We walk down to the carryout by the highway and get shrimp fried rice and wings and crazy fries, and we don't even have to wait to get back to the house to start eating. We shovel orange rice into our mouths with our hands. Dean wipes his fingers on his shirt and rubs the lump swelling on his neck. Then he drops his hands to his sides and stares out at the 18-wheelers charging down the highway. Nothing like this has ever happened before. His voice is so empty that I swallow a whole shrimp without chewing at all. I keep coughing for longer than I need to because I'm trying to figure out what to say back. Hey, you don't know that. Maybe there's some fancy doctor somewhere and all he does is study this. Maybe we find him and he fixes us. Dean doesn't look away from the highway. Seriously, big sister? You think I got lumps on my brain? You shut up. I was just trying to think positive or something, I don't know. We finish the fried rice without speaking. We start on the crazy fries. So many cars fly by. I wonder what they would think if they slowed down to look at us. What if they saw what was under our clothes? Nah, Dean goes. This is something new. We gotta start thinking totally different about this. 
Different like putting a fry in your nose? What? But he's too distracted, and I get one in each of his nostrils before he can duck. And then it's just like when he was six and I was 12, and he's yelling, fry monster, fry monster, and chasing me all the way home. I lose him going up the hill. He's still faster, even with 14 lumps. And so I'm walking and huffing toward home when I see a car parked on the corner of James Row and Marion Street. Little hatchback, shiny red like a toy, no exhaust pipe. Nobody around here owns one of those cars. I stare at it for a moment, but then Dean is yelling for me to come unlock the door, so I go on. For a while, Trini had this guy friend, but now he says he's not going to come around anymore. Just to be safe, he says. What a useless coward, you know? Trini holds both her eyes open with her fingers. No way am I going to cry over him. I pull her hands away from her eyes. I get out my little soak tub and set her fingers in hot water. Honestly, I think you're kind of lucky. Like if I was betting on which of you was going to be giving out diseases, I would not put my money on you. Just saying. What, is that supposed to make me feel better? Yeah. You know what, Noma? You are pretty cold sometimes. She's tipped way forward on the couch because by now the lumps are all over her back like little mountains. The coward said it was just his survival instinct, she goes on. Said I couldn't blame him for just following his survival instinct. The baby sits on the floor in front of her. He's got just this one lump between his shoulder blades. It makes it look like maybe he's about to sprout wings. I lift Trini's hands from the soak and start to massage her wrists. I work my way over the tendons in the back of her hand, feel them shift over her bones. I'm standing up because the lumps make it hard for me to bend in the middle. Our skin is stretched shiny in these places where the domes grow. Sometimes I think I can feel them rasping against each other inside me. They're kind of like elegant, you know? Trini says. Like better than some tattoo or something? And I'm serious, way better than being pregnant. No offense, baby. She tickles the baby, who breathes funny now that his lump is basically as wide as his whole back. I rub moisturizer into Trini's knuckles. Knead each of her fingers. Our hands are fragrant with cucumber melon. Then, without really thinking, I reach up and stroke the lump below her shoulder. Her skin slides just a little bit over the hardness. I imagine them all hidden in the darkness of her. Baseball-sized diamonds buried in black earth. White hot lumps of star stuff, buried in black space. Now that I've seen it once, I see it every day. That little red car parked on Marion Street. This time, it's right by the taped-up magic factory gate. And through the back windshield, I notice a silhouette in the driver's seat, upright and still. I walk up along the sidewalk and tap on the passenger window. What you still doing here? Inside, there's a man looking like a lawn gone to seed. Wrinkled dress shirt done up wrong and stubble patching his jaw. His head jerks when I knock. Huh? Yeah, huh? What are you still doing here? His eyes are big and dark as holes and his mouth works soundlessly. What? You can't hear me? How about you open the window? Long hesitation. And then, without taking his eyes off me... He raises his hand and toggles the window down. That's better. Look, 
I was just curious, I guess. What are you doing here? I'm sorry. He brings a thumb to his mouth and gnaws on the nail. He still hasn't blinked. I don't know what you're talking about. You worked in there. I jerk a thumb at the magic factory. I used to see your cargo in. Plus, my girl Trini was first shift security guard. That little booth right there. But, you know, it's closed now. So why are you still here? He so slowly raises his hands, turn them palm up like he's about to receive a present from the steering wheel. Then he methodically, mechanically, lowers his face into those palms. I hold onto the door rim and use one big toenail to scratch an itch on my other ankle. I wait. He slides his hands down an inch. I don't know. I ask myself. I can't. I can't seem to let it go. What's it? I was a researcher I was helping to. Then his eyes change like he's remembering other things about me. But you know already. You must have seen. We saw the magic shows, yeah? I put my elbows down on the door rim and lean through the window into his car. Tell me. He starts to laugh. It's all gone. Poof. I never worked here. Your memory must be tricking you. Check the records. There was never even a lab. He's not really getting it. Research man, I don't have a lot of time. I lean farther into his car and smell the unwashed smell. You didn't call it a magic show, I bet. We had longer words. We thought that meant we understood it better. But you didn't. No. You didn't know shit. He reaches for my face, stops his hand halfway across the distance between us. Look at you. It glows inside you. Even I can see that. His dark hole eyes widen like he wants to take in every inch of me. I try to imagine him in a lab coat, ironed, clean-shaven. Probably at one point, he was the kind of person I'd be scared to talk to, which almost makes me laugh. Like, imagine you spend your whole life afraid to look on the face of God, and then you finally do, and it turns out he's just one more eyes-nose-mouth combo, just another blur to be learned in a minute, remembered or forgotten, without much work. Instead, I hiss. If I dragged you out of the car right now and stomped your head into the curb, would you fight me? He shakes his head, and I can hear small, dry things rattling in his hollow body. No. Would it change anything? His eyes meet mine, and between us we hold the answer unspoken. Why don't you leave us alone then? You didn't before. You could now. He flinches. I... I wanted you to know. I had to tell someone. For whatever it's worth. I'm sorry. It was a mistake. I'm so, so sorry. I don't really sleep anymore. Kind of I just lie in bed and sweat and imagine shapes in the dark. Once in the deepest part of the night, I hear a weird noise coming from the front of the house. A shivery kind of croon. I coax the orbs of my body into a standing position and feel my way to the living room. Dean sits up on the sofa bed, shaking. I turn the lamp on and see his face shiny with tears. Little brother, you okay? He can barely get out words between sobs. It was just a dream. 
I haven't seen him cry so hard since he was three. Osh, that's right. Just a nightmare. It's gone now. He's still crying, but he manages to shake his head. It, it wasn't, wasn't a nightmare. Oh, yeah? What was it? It was so beautiful. Oh, well, like, that's not so bad then, huh? What was beautiful? He snorks a big load of snot back into his head, wipes his face on the edge of my t-shirt. The things, the things that are growing in us, that are getting ready to come out. And it's like all my insides have vanished, which is good because otherwise I might throw up. But I didn't. But I never said. His sobs have stopped, and now he's just laughing really quiet. Norma, I wish you'd quit acting like I'm in diapers. It won't do you any good. Everybody can feel it. We're the magic factories now. Next morning, Dean is gone. He spends most of his time now by the dumpster outside the Amorcito apartments, passing roaches around with high-rise delinquents. I always thought those kids were kind of dead in the eyes, but whatever. I guess so are we. I walk down there and find him laying into this pale kid with more lumps than anyone I've seen. What are you, sad? You think this is some kind of therapy session? Dean kicks the dumpster to punctuate his sentences. There isn't a thing to be sad about. There's never been anything like us. We're the next stage. The whole world is going to pay attention. The wispy kid has a hard time stringing together a response. I know, it's just scary sometimes when you think about it. Scary? Dean's voice goes all smooth. I know. But you can't be scared either. You have to welcome it. Think how pretty a butterfly is. I get shivers listening to him talking like an adult while his voice still seesaws between high and low. His voice that used to beg me to go to the splash park or call me over to look at some weird bug he'd found. He's almost six feet tall now, though he doesn't look it. Just a jumble of elbows and shins and Adam's apple and hair that hasn't been washed in too long. It makes his lumps stand out even more. Now he reaches out and strokes the kid's bumpy head. When you see the butterfly, you understand why the cocoon rejoices as it breaks. Rejoices as it breaks. Rejoices as it breaks. I start walking and the words churn around my brain faster and faster as my steps speed up. I see the little red car parked by the lab gate, and I head straight for it, blood rough in my ears. The passenger side door is unlocked, of course it's unlocked, and I get in and slam it behind me. I stare straight ahead. Outside, the sun is going down, and the sky is a smooth creamsicle field. After a moment, he says, Is something happening? Do you feel different? Yeah, I knew he'd ask this, and I wanted him to, except now it only pisses me off. Out of the corner of my eye, his hands are folded in his lap. He scrapes the cuticle of one thumb with the nail of the other. Can you describe the sensations in your torso right now? Now I look at him. You're serious? If you can tell me what you're experiencing, I might be able to get some sense of the progression of... Jesus, Mr. Scientist Man, I don't fucking know. I kick my sandals off and arrange my feet on his dashboard. How about you drive already? 
He is still and silent for a moment. Then he pushes the ignition. The car hums to life quieter than an electric razor. In the side mirror, the magic factory slides away behind us. I don't say anything until we're coming down the ramp onto the highway. You want to know how I'm feeling? I'm feeling like I want to see someplace pretty. You know anywhere like that? Take me someplace really fucking pretty. We stand on the edge of a river. The water is cloudy and clogged with floating islands of sticks and muck and lost flip-flops. On the far bank, the sunset licks the trees with copper. I exhale and feel something more than air flow out of me. The scientist grazes my wrist with his bitten fingernails. They found it near here, you know, in a field. Not far away. Not out in space. It fell right here. And we thought we were so lucky. We got to name it. We got to do something wonderful for humanity. We weren't bad people. He twists toward me. If you had the chance to touch something utterly unknown, something not of this world, wouldn't you take it? I keep my eyes on those far bright trees. I didn't have a choice. Like he was struck. Right. We stand next to each other for a long time. He keeps opening and closing his mouth. Finally, he goes, I wish you could have seen how beautiful it was. There's something in his voice I recognize. His hunger chimes with mine. Like maybe if we devoured each other, deep inside the other's gut, we'd both find peace. He puts a hand on my waist, doesn't flinch when he feels the lumps. He lays two fingers in my face. You're so beautiful. I start to shake. You should get me home. I'm feeling full of fire. I'm feeling untouchable. I'm thinking, no, no, he couldn't kiss me any more than he could kiss the hot edge of a knife. Our lips meet. One of his hands slides between my legs. We both gasp. He kisses my neck. You don't deserve pain, he says to my skin. You don't deserve any of this. Let me, please... There's some sad little part of me that thinks he's offering to undo it all. The rest of me knows this is a stupid, weak hope. Not God nor Jesus, and certainly no scientist has power like that. But still, the huge sweetness of this thought, I lean into it. He peels off my clothes there by the river. I pull, or he pushes, us back against a tree. The bark scrapes my back, and I shiver, like way back on that cold morning in August. My heart is exploding blood through me. Every beat hurls the globes against my skin. He stares at me for a minute, and I think he's forgotten how to breathe. Then he pulls me to him, wet kisses down the center of my chest and each rib and my belly. His knees press into the mud. So beautiful, so beautiful. His breath tickles my stomach. I'm so sorry, so sorry. He kisses the lumps lips brushing the crest of each dome. His kisses make them churn. Whoever deserved to see beauty like this? He lays a cheek against them, nuzzles them with his nose. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve this. I stare across the river at the trees, though the sun is almost down now, 
their fires smoldering out. The river, under its sluggish skin, runs fast and cold. They brought me here when I was little, once. They taught us about the water cycle. The scientist enters me like a plea, like somewhere at my core lies the promise of his own absolution. He seeks it again and again. What happens the next week is pale blue slips show up tacked toward doors. Properties in the indicated area have been designated unfit for habitation. Domain is hereby transferred to a redevelopment firm. Current residents have two weeks from notification date to complete relocation. I know there was a time when I would have gotten mad about this. When I would have looked around at the apartment, the view through our window and the spot where Dean rollerbladed into the door and the Eiffel Tower picture I taped to the wall and gone wild at the thought of leaving. But now it's like someone's yelling at me from far away, almost too far for me to hear, and I just can't see how it could be that important. They're tearing down our houses? Trini says from the couch. Trini doesn't get off the couch anymore. Then she just starts laughing and laughing, except her laugh sounds basically like a grunt. Dean and I start to pack our stuff. At least, I think we're packing, but I can't tell if we're really getting anything done. I keep putting things in boxes and taking them out and refolding them. Dean finds mom's clothes crammed onto a high shelf and pulls them all down fluttering avalanche of rayon and polyester over his head. He presses his face into her dresses, gasps in like he wants to pull the fabric into his lungs. Out in the street, we show each other the blue notices. We ask, where are people headed? We shake our heads. One thing that's changed is we touch each other more. Even people I barely know, instead of saying hi, we just brush our palms over the hills in each other's skin. We move like people who are sleepwalking. We move like people who are about to wake up. The only person who doesn't act like they're dreaming is Dean. He stands on the bleachers in Paige Clifton Field, wearing one of Mom's old nightgowns. The dead-eyed kids crowd the grass in front of him, reach up to touch his hem. He howls, We are the mothers of new creation. Do you feel the power growing inside you? Why do you think they want to drive us out? His face is unspeakable. More people pause at the edge of the field, listening. They fear us. They fear our children. His voice climbs up to a shriek. They may cast us out of here, but we will spread across the country. We will spread across the planet. When it comes, it will come to all of us, and it will not be denied, and every place on earth will know our glory. Everyone listening starts to whoop and sway. A breeze picks up, and Mom's nightgown billows around him and fills with light, and his bony, lumpy body is silhouetted through the white fabric. Really, I have no idea anymore. Who can even say he could be my little brother, or he could be a goddess born in the center of the sun, come to walk with us through the fire of these last days? On our final night in the fourplex, I go out into the backyard. It really wasn't that long ago that we stood here and whooped for the magic factory to get going already. There's no glitter or glow anymore. Only the plain sky, filthy with regular stars. For everyone I count, there's one more. For every world that lets you down, there's another and another, promising redemption. It's strange looking up at them. They flicker and pulse, and from inside me come answering pulses, And I know without knowing that what's inside me is the same as what's up there. 
I'm flayed down to nothing but a thin boundary of skin between two fields of stars. You know, when I think about my life, there's not really a lot I got to choose. Mostly what I did was because we'd be evicted otherwise, or because there was a coupon for it, and I never spent too much time freaking out about that. But now I have this new feeling, like something is loosened, I didn't even know was tight. Like the gentlest stream ever is carrying me away. Like I don't have to worry anymore about anything. No regrets or what-ifs, because before I go, I'm going to make something beautiful. Maybe I'll be the sound, the music that was never music. People all over will hear me and freeze and just start crying where they stand. Or I'll be the stars that gush up into the sky and rain down over the highway. All the cars will come screeching to a halt and everybody will reach out their windows for the lights falling around them and laugh and know that there is love everywhere in the world, even where you don't imagine it could survive. Or I'll pour into a spring of clear shining liquid. I'll flood the streets and wash away the sticks and trash and broken glass, and you can come out and dip your Dixie cup in and gather me up. One drop on your tongue and your scrapes will heal, your teeth will straighten, your feet will soothe. One sip and your daddy will come home. A cup full and come close now. No one will ever lie to you again. The world will be set on fire with justice. All the things you hunger for will fly close like tame hummingbirds. Just reach out. Oh, God. Just take it. Welcome to We Will Remember Freedom. Uh, Everyone who is listening to this has just heard your story, Alien Love Disaster Virus. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, getting over a cold. So I was wondering if you could start by telling kind of the, the story of this story, like where it came from. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think this story, most of my stories come from a conglomeration of ideas or experiences I have and I feel like I kind of amass a certain number of things that feel interesting to me and then I'm like okay I have enough to pack into one piece of short fiction and so this piece I wrote it a long time ago so I have to like page way back through history um I I think one of the initial inspirations was reading about farming companies who would like treat their workers who had been crop dusted or contaminated with pesticides would um, deal with that by rounding people up and spraying them with fire hoses. And that image really stuck in my mind um, as like a kind of violence, but like a very particular visual kind of violence. Um, And, oh, what else? I was thinking a lot about disease um, and just what it meant to like carry 
disease in your body and how that like changed changes how you think of yourself and your relationship to society and other people um <clears throat> and I'm sure there's another thing and I'm forgetting it right now. It's going to come to me. Usually there's like three or four things that come together. Um, but I started, and I was thinking a lot about like sibling relationships. Um, maybe that was another thing. And so I kind of like put those, put those together. I think I was also like in a period, maybe I'm always like, kind of very interested, but also very frustrated with alien stories and like what it means to write about extraterrestrials and, and that I, I feel like you can't actually. Um, and yet you can't imagine something that's outside of people um, or human experience, but also that like, the idea of of like the ultimate other or something unknowable um, is really useful for examining a lot of things, and so those those things all kind of came together, um, and yeah, and and came together in the story that that originally had like so many other pieces and dynamics to it like I was trying to explore the whole life of this community throughout like a year of their bodies deteriorating um and it got pared down a lot in the end um yeah okay that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> uh one of the things that really struck me about this story okay so yeah you said you pared it down a lot the story doesn't really, um, the plot of it doesn't really sp have a specific ending, yet the, the story arc itself, like the narrative arc doesn't quite resolve in the way that I feel like a lot of, uh, especially fantasy and science fiction stories tend to. Um, but I feel like you did a good job of closing the story kind of thematically instead. Was that a, a conscious decision? <clears throat> yeah, I... <laughs> I originally wanted to take it to the point where uh, they all explode or the things hatch out of them. Um, and I had written a scene where like, there's, there's people in other places or people who got infected with this egg or parasite or whatever it is have, have traveled. And so there's like videos that they're seeing on cell phones of people exploding and like just like diamonds pouring out of them or like weird smoke or all, all different visuals um, or different weird manifestations coming out of people and they're watching it and wondering like, when's that going to happen to me? Um, and, and I imagined like, people getting mobilized or people coming together and realizing like we carry this power in our bodies because people are afraid of what's going to come out of us. Um, and it was just too long. And I also, it didn't feel like there was a way to write that moment of like bodies dissolving that moment of dissolution without it being like sort of disappointing somehow. 
and which maybe was like a risk I should have taken. Um, but instead the route I took was to not quite get there, like right, right almost up to that moment. And then um, just like gesture towards it in the future. <clears throat> that, that makes sense. I, For me, I actually think it works. I think that's one of the strengths of the story. Uh, one of the things that I think you do in, in at least the book, Alien Love Disaster Virus Stories, um, it seems like you're writing in this way that kind of bridges between literature and then like traditional genre fiction and speculative fiction, uh, mm-hmm. at, at least in a lot of your like story structure. Um, I could be wrong, but I feel like your story structure kind of seems to take more from literature, even though the actual elements of the story tend to be very fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, so one of the things that I kept, I, I was, I reread this story right before the interview. And one of the things that really stuck with me is that there's this kind of thing that I, I read a lot when I read more literature, which was this, these stories about the, you know, banality and like the mundanity of like, well, of life or of the apocalypse or of, you know, society, whatever. And I, I feel like your stories tend to address some of those same things, but do it in a way by using fantastic elements that actually make it resonate more with me. Like I'm, I'm not bored while reading about characters that are dealing with a sort of existential boredom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's a, a conscious choice also about how you how you work with that yeah i i was talking to an agent once who eventually became my agent and she had read this story and she was like i really like it it reminds me of friday night lights and i was like that's not a comparison i've ever heard before or a show that i've ever watched or a thing i was thinking about um but I think what she meant was like it's it's about regular people going through their lives and their lives feel sort of like real in a day-to-day sense, even though this supernatural strange thing is happening to them. Um and I think that's that's something I'm really interested in. Maybe this is a little bit different than your question, so you can steer me if you want. Um But I I do think I, like, I grew up reading really traditional science fiction, like Asimov and Damon Knight and Heinlein and Ursula Le Guin, and then, like, slowly moved into more, like, feminist and revolutionary people. Um, But, and, and then, like, then, my 20s reading um, more like style-based literary stuff. And I, I do really like the idea of taking the kind of subject matter, the strangeness and the uh, future-oriented stories and putting them into the shapes of literary things or things that 
um, like allow the characters to address whatever internal conflicts and struggles and, and growth that they're having um, in the presence of like weird shit that's happening. But that that is is more the backdrop or not just the backdrop, but like I, I imagine uh, strange and horrifying and, and futuristic things will still like affect and change people in the ways that life today also affects and changes you. And I'm interested in like giving things that texture of reality, even when they don't reside actually within our contemporary reality. That makes sense. And I feel like everything you write, there's so many ways that different speculative fiction writers try to use the fantastic in order to um, create metaphors and parables about our society. Mm -hmm. But I I feel like you do it in a a different way than most of what I've seen. uh, And I really appreciate that. Um, For me, it almost, it helps me resonate. I feel like, you know, again, in my notes, I I wrote down the banality of the apocalypse and, and maybe you address Mm -hmm. that more in some of the other stories in your book, but I feel like this one touches at it too. Um, and that feels really real to me as we're entering a kind of apocalyptic stage in the world. Yeah, totally. Um, I, let's see. So originally we talked about, uh, doing this podcast together, but you actually ended up too busy teaching, um, and, you know, writing and doing other things. And, and so I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about what it means to you to be an anarchist fiction writer and maybe (laughs) specifically about how you don't just write about anarchists or something like, you know, your stories at the very least have a lot of like really conscious class critique um, and other things running through them. Yeah. Oh man. I want to ask you that question. (laughs) And also, like, I want to ask you what you think of as anarchist fiction. Um, Because I do feel like, like this, I don't often write about people who are, like, politically conscious or thinking through their lives with a particular lens or philosophy um and i often feel like I, I don't know how to do that that's one of the things that i love in your books so much is that you have these characters who have who are like thinking about their own lives very consciously and are also like active and doing so much and like such engaging people to follow um and i I think maybe I'm like moving towards that, but the stories in this book felt very much like like me processing the horrors of the world as they came at me um, by imagining people who were going through like either very familiar or very strange situations um, and didn't totally know how to deal with them. Um, and I 
so I often like have trouble like thinking of my work as overtly political or like believing that it belongs in that canon. Um, I think the thing that feels anarchist to me, at least in these stories, is that like one of the one of the common themes that I found running through all the stories in the book that this one comes out of is that it's it's people who are like coming up against the limits of their own agency or their own power um, and feeling trapped somehow and and trying to regain that agency or power usually through kind of destructive or self-destructive means um and usually they they can't actually like this story ends with everyone on the verge of of their bodies disintegrating um usually that's this seems to be what happens people like dissolve into another dimension or explode or like end violently somehow um and i've had people say that makes uh for really depressing reading but i think the thing that feels that draws me to that is that impulse to keep trying or keep trying to um assert your own agency or assert power um and like feel actualized or or feel alive through the act of doing that, um, even if it's not successful, even if there's not like a clear end or outcome or change that comes, it's like people um, acting with a desire for their own power and freedom. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's what I can come up with. And I, I think there is something political in that, but I'm, I'm like curious to think more about ways that I can um, like merge that with more characters who like think about their own situations also. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Um... I mean, it's interesting because one of the reasons that I wanted to have, there's a million reasons I wanted to have you on the show and have you on the show early on into the the run of the show. But one of the reasons is that I'm really excited to run this this story is because I want to kind of show that anarchist fiction isn't necessarily just like stories about either an anarchist society facing trouble or anarchists fighting against the current society or or anything like that, but which I obviously love those stories too. And I, I like writing those stories, but that an anarchist story can also be one that just like looks at existing problems through a lens that critiques like, well, just critiques power and critiques uh, people's lack of agency, as you put it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I'd love to see what you can do if you try something different, but I also think you're doing a really good job of, <laughs> of what you're doing. Um, and I don't know if it's necessary to be explicit, although it's true that sometimes it could be more uplifting if people have uh, some modicum of hope or 
mm-hmm. <laughs> or agency. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's true that if I were to uh, try and sell a friend on reading this book, I wouldn't necessarily like use words like uplifting or anything <laughs> like that. No, I think people have found the book and like expected it to be more traditional science fiction and then been like very disoriented when they <laughs> actually read it. Um, <clears throat> well, and that makes me think about like the dispossessed as like the quintessential very overly anarchist science fiction novel, but it's also like it doesn't depict an anarchist society as a particularly happy place to be yeah, or like as a success. And that seems like another way that like that label of anarchist fiction can encompass things that are not, not showing like the triumph of anarchy. I remember uh, recently um, I was critiquing tankies and authoritarian communists as I tend to do. And this authoritarian communist came back at me and was like, you know, one of the things I said was that one of the reasons authoritarians will always betray the revolution, as I believe that they have historically done, is because they believe in a society in which, or some of them at least, believe in a society in which their view is the correct view and is like the only acceptable view because they want to have a a sort of Mm -hmm. ideological monopoly. And this, this tanky came back at me and basically said, well, everyone thinks that everyone, you know, believes that their way is is the way to do it, and it was just funny to me because it's like, no, only people who think that their way is absolutely the way are the people who do that. Uh-huh. And I, I, I'm proud to say that, like, largely, the the wor- works of anarchist fiction that have gotten out into the world tend to be self-critical as well, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's one of our strengths is that yeah like i mean i do get sad because i'm like i don't want to live on an rs like um <laughs> right. you know the dispossessed is not the book that i really want to hand people to be like this is what i want the world to look like you know but i i do think <laughs> as an anarchist fiction presentation i i love that it's because i mean what that's that's i'm kind of rambling but that's one of the main ideas of being an anarchist is that you will always be critical of power dynamics. And even in an anarchist society, it's not like some perfect happy utopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think like one of the reasons that, that the label of anarchism, like is a thing that resonates with me is it, I feel like it demands a lot of curiosity from me and being present in the current moment and paying attention to just what's happening around me and how, how do I respond to that? And how do I like respond to other people's needs in a way that is like responsible and attentive. Um, And I'm trying to figure out a way to tie that into like how I think about fiction (laughs) and I don't know. (laughs) Um, like that, that being willing to not have a particular program that I'm trying to 
forced on people's throats are. Um, that's a metric by which I judge success. Feels like in itself, it's like an ethic and a way to be. Um, and in that sense, I feel like I do hand people the dispossessed. And I'm like, this is how I try to think about like being and constantly questioning like what's happening around me. Yeah. Um, Cause it does like the Anaris kind of goes off the rails, but, but it does, the book is populated with characters who are trying to do that. Like that constant questioning, constant critique. One of the this, one of the characters that I really like in Alien Love Disaster Virus is the the strange prophet, the younger brother, um, and I feel like you do this interesting thing where um, you're kind of showing these. I mean, it's it's the story really gets at the sort of freedom of nothing to lose, and I think that that ties. Mm-hmm. kind of always into class and well and criminality and the sort of freedom of a people who you know like all of the people in this story basically feel completely doomed and there's a kind of uh a sort of rapturous joy that some of them are learning to find in that and i don't know i think that resonates with me and, and kind of gets out a little bit of what you're talking about Mm-hmm. I don't have a question at the end of that, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm trying to think of where the little brother character came from. And and also, like, I guess I, I have the hard time writing characters who have a political perspective um, and not making them sort of more characters or because I feel like whatever I, I write, I can always like immediately start to undermine it in my head, think about like, oh, what about this like argument against what this person is saying? Um, so like the, the lean little brother becomes um, becomes this kind of I like the word profit or like trying to draw people together. Um, but I also feel like that it doesn't sideline him, but it, he, he becomes less three-dimensional and human when that happens. Um, and the narrator starts thinking like, is he's changing, he's turning into something else. Um, gender starts getting more and more ambiguous. Um, and I think he's like maybe like embodying this this kind of ancestral presence Um, but also feels like he becomes an archetype instead of a person with a lot with like thoughts that are changing I don't know what I'm saying there (laughs) does that make sense yeah uh, unfortunately you're starting to cut out or get a little robot-y. Um, hopefully, it'll, uh, hopefully it'll get better. Dear listener, it did not get better. If you'd like to hear your own stories on this podcast, please read our submission guidelines on wewillrememberfreedom.com. This podcast quite literally wouldn't exist without the generous support of my patrons on patreon.com. 
I hire voice actors to read the stories, and I pay authors. I believe writing is honest, blue-collar work. This month in particular, I'd like to thank Chris, Nora, Hoss the Dog, Kirk, Eleanor, Natalie, and Sam. If you'd like to help out the podcast, please consider supporting me over there. I use my own name, Margaret Kiljoy, so it's patreon.com slash Margaret Kiljoy. Anyone who backs me at any level will get access to my zine that I write every month, as well as new music and other random things. If you like the show, make sure to like the podcast or subscribe or share or whatever the fuck, because that's the only way anyone is ever going to know about the show. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>